I'm so sorry about the chaos today. So I'm trying to find a kind of quietish place. Can you guys hear me okay? Claire Parker is the Cairo Bureau Chief for The Washington Post. And she was speaking to me from a rest stop about 25 miles outside of Marrakesh. And we just got back here after a long day of driving up um, through the mountains um, where we saw some of the some of the worst destruction that we've seen since we arrived early yesterday morning. Last Friday, an earthquake hit Morocco that leveled whole communities and left at least 2,900 people dead. This is the worst earthquake Morocco has seen in more than a century. The death toll is only rising, and the full scale of the devastation is just starting to come into view. Claire and her colleagues spent Monday talking to people in some of the hardest-hit villages in the high Atlas Mountains. We're just seeing houses completely flattened, buildings where, you know, there's just the front of a building and all of the back of it has fallen off of a cliff. We've seen destroyed schools, destroyed mosques, basically decimated cities where the survivors are camped, not in proper tents, but just in makeshift tents that they've kind of rigged up with blankets, with um, tarps and string or sticks. It's really hot during the day here, and so they're sitting out kind of in the in the baking heat. There's no running water, there's no toilets, um, and then at night it gets really cold. And many of these people are still waiting for help to come. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Tuesday, September 12th. Today, Claire tells us what's happening on the ground in Morocco. The government has mobilized the army and sent thousands of doctors and nurses, but basic necessities are still hard to come by. And there are big questions about what the future holds. Claire, can you orient us as to where exactly you are in Morocco and where all of this has taken place? So I'm... South of Marrakesh, which is kind of in south-central Morocco. And these are the Atlas mountain range. Um, very tall peaks, very remote countryside. The, the kind of city, bustling city, quickly gives way to small villages and then smaller villages and then tiny hamlets that are just kind of perched up in the mountains. Um, and some of these are not even accessible by by car. And so... For example, we passed um, a village today. We were driving on this kind of winding mountain road, you know, with a, a cliff on one side and and a mountain of, with small rocks sort of trickling down on the other. Hmm. And um, down below, we could see there was a path um, leading up to a, a collection of houses that were perched on this hill, but it wasn't wide enough for a car. And so we saw men loading uh, supplies onto the back of a donkey to bring up to this village. Mm. And so this is how remote this region is. It's quite high altitude. It gets very cold at night, even in the summer. Um, It's very hot during the day and very dry. The soil, the earth is kind of very crumbly already. And so I think that's part of why this earthquake was so bad here and why the impact was so bad. Partly the isolation in terms of sort of ability for aid to reach the victims and the survivors, but also 
in, in these villages where we went and especially farther up in the mountains. So um, in Elbur, which is in the Wergan region, um, and then in the most devastated place that we've seen since we arrived um, called Tlet and Yakub, the houses are constructed of clay bricks, basically, and wood, just really unstable, non, not sturdy materials. And so they just were completely flattened. So Claire, can you tell us a little bit more about some of the conversations you've been having with people on the ground and more about what you've seen on, you know, just a few days after this earthquake? So a lot of the conversations we've been having with people were people who were out in open fields, dirt fields, houses had completely crumbled. It wasn't safe to go back. Um, But they had kind of ventured back to just grab a few supplies, um, grab some pots and pans, a tea kettle, some blankets to set up these makeshift shelters for themselves. And what we heard again and again uh, was that government aid has been very slow to arrive at all. A lot of um, the sort of food, water, basic essentials that people have received have come from local associations and individual donors. Some of that aid had begun to materialize on Monday, but this is three days after the quake. Yeah. And what are the most immediate needs of people? What are people telling you and their most pressing concerns in the aftermath of this earthquake? What we're hearing is that people, first of all, really need shelter. There are some kind of these official camps that we've seen set up here in Azni, for example, and in Talata and Yakub, actually. Um, But mostly, as I said, people are kind of sleeping out in the open and On Sunday, I met a couple um, who had lost both of their children in the earthquake and their home, completely destroyed. And the woman was injured. She showed me bruises on her abdomen and her arms. Her husband uh, had a bad knee after, after a piece of debris fell on his knee, and he was kind of hobbling on a cane, and they had nowhere to sleep. And they were just asking, please, can we have a place to sleep? And so... That's the most immediate need. And then also really basics like food and medicines. We keep hearing people need medicines too. So food, medicines, shelter is what we're hearing. And have the search and rescue efforts, are those still ongoing several days after the earthquake? So the search and rescue efforts were very slow to get started. And really what what we've been hearing and what reporting elsewhere in the country um, has revealed is that you know, in the immediate aftermath of the quake, in many, many of these villages, it was just villagers digging with their bare hands through the rubble. Um, and the the couple that I met yesterday, it was the the man and, and some neighbors who were digging with their bare hands through the rubble of the house to first pull out his wife and then to find the bodies of his children and bury them. There are search and rescue operations ongoing. At this point, what we heard today from one of the Moroccan um, official rescuers um, is that it's essentially a recovery operation. There's no hope of finding people alive. Um, And I think that faded pretty fast after the quake. Um, It's quite different from, for example, the earthquake in Syria and Turkey um, earlier this year when people were still pulling out survivors days later. I think partly because of just how poorly constructed these buildings are, 
what we saw today, we saw a really harrowing scene in, in Elbor, which is a this tiny village. And we watched while we were there, the rescuer standing. Um, there was a, an excavator machine and then they were using shovels in their hands to um, to kind of pull back the debris from a house that had completely collapsed. Um, and then we pretty quickly realized that in this clearing right by where they were working, there was a woman who was wailing and other women were comforting her and the rescuers were searching for the body of her seven-year-old son who was buried under the rubble. And this woman, her name was Habiba. Um, all of her family members um, who had lived there in that house um, were killed. She was the only survivor. These were her parents, um, her husband, her um, two brothers and their wives. And then they had all been extracted and buried. And the only one left was her son, Bader, who's seven. Um, and while we were there, um, the rescuers were able to, to move the debris, to extract his body, to put it on a stretcher and cover it in a blanket and, and bring it to um, a nearby building uh, to be washed according to, to Muslim ritual. Um, and then very quickly after sort of a final, a final prayer taken to the cemetery. Yeah. I mean, th- this is just so horrific. And for these survivors, there are the immediate needs that they have to just take care of remaining alive, you know, food and shelter. But I can't help at this moment also think of the long-term impacts this kind of mass trauma is going to have on people who've lost not only their homes, but so many members of their families. Yeah, it's pretty hard to comprehend. And I think so many of the people that we met were just really still in shock, um, trying to kind of grasp the enormity of that. Um, And so... It's very unclear. I mean, what will, you know, what the um, timeline will be for rebuilding these villages, whether they will be rebuilt. Um, I mean, these are whole communities just just wiped out, mountain communities. So on Monday, the government said that uh, the prime minister had held an emergency meeting in in the capital, Rabat, and he had promised that the government would continue with um, relief efforts and provide support to survivors and some level of compensation and reconstruction. Um, and this is sort of a plan in conjunction with the, the palace, the king. Um, but it wasn't clear really what the time frame for that is and in sort of what that would actually look like. So I think we're waiting to see in the, in the days and weeks ahead if more details emerge on that front. After the break, gaps in the government's response and what ordinary Moroccans are doing about it. We'll be right back. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. So, Claire, you've shared already a little bit as to how the Moroccan government is responding to this crisis. 
Can you tell me a little bit more about what they're doing on the ground and how are people on the ground feeling about the government response? I think overall, we've heard a lot of expressions of um, feeling rather abandoned or that they hadn't received aid, um, you know, basic relief items, but also that sometimes we heard some accounts of ambulances passing people, injured people by on on the road who were trying to flag them down for help. Or we heard um, people tell us that that no, no government rescuers, no rescuers who were formally trained in that kind of work of any kind had arrived. And it was simply hmm. villagers digging people out of the rubble themselves. And so I think there's a lot of anger. We came across a scene of a bunch of basically angry, very angry um, residents, men in the area, shouting at one army officer who was standing there um, saying, this is chaos. What's what's going on? So I think that that will be something that that lingers in, in the, the period ahead. Mm-hmm. And, and what about aid from other countries? What are you seeing and how is the Moroccan government interacting with foreign governments that have offered to help in this moment? So they've permitted some governments um, to send aid or rescuers. There's um, a Spanish rescue mission that is here. However, a lot of countries have offered aid and have been either not given an answer or told no by the Moroccan government. So I think that's confused a lot of a lot of governments and, and countries that are are wanting to help but have not been given the authorization to do so. So it's a bit unclear what are the reasons behind that. But um, I think you know at, at this at this point also what is needed or what we're hearing that is needed is is really sort of humanitarian relief because I think in a, at this point in in most places there isn't really an expectation of finding survivors under the rubble anymore. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, in the absence of a more robust response from either the Moroccan government or having more international aid on the ground right now, what have you seen as to how locals and residents are responding to this moment and what they're doing? Yeah, I mean, the solidarity shown by ordinary Moroccans has been astounding. Um, We've seen, again, on these really twisty, turny, narrow mountain roads that are are very difficult to navigate, um, hundreds of small cars packed full of blankets and milk and water and diapers, all of these supplies making their way to these remote villages just out of a sense of an obligation to help. I spoke to a 25-year-old woman named Hind Fatani, who is from Casablanca and had driven all the way down with several other um, volunteers just to bring uh, supplies like milk, you know, dried food, water, etc. She told me, to the people who are coming here, I implore you to go to different areas from Marrakesh because people here have been given aid. So try to go farther in to the epicenter where the earthquake hit because people are suffering here. Everyone is dead here, and many haven't been pulled from under the rubble yet because there's a smell of death everywhere. People are really devastated. Don't bring anything else but medication and food. Food and medication. You know, I think there's just this feeling that everyone's really pulling together um, communities. 
you know, local communities, of course, um, neighbors helping neighbors. Someone told me on Sunday, you know, if, if there's a house that's half destroyed, they'll give whatever they have to the people whose house was fully destroyed. Mm-hmm. But there's also just Moroccans from all across the country coming to help um, to the extent that on these mountain roads, I mean, it's creating traffic jams. Hmm. Um, there are so many cars pouring into these villages. Um, so I think that has been really remarkable to see. Um, and, you know, this is a small anecdote, but we went to a, a large grocery store yesterday and um, we saw this couple just loading up their cart full of like salami and snacks and, you know, water bottles and they had just decided they were just going to buy all of these things and then go take them to a place that needed them. So it's been it's been really sort of heartwarming amid all the destruction to kind of see see some of those scenes. Yeah. Yeah, Claire, it seems like disasters like these in any part of the world can really reveal the underlying dynamic of a community or society. I mean, I, I saw that in, in Maui when there was a wildfire there and it was mm. devastating and similar scenes of, you know, the government wasn't immediately there and people coming together. Um, but then also all the other underlying dynamics that made made that tragedy what it was. And I'm wondering, in this moment, as you are on the ground in Morocco, if you're observing a similar dynamic that this horrific earthquake is really showing the world what some of the underlying issues and strengths of this this place were in this community this is a a part of the the country that is quite remote but also neglected in terms of infrastructure um, and services and so people really have to fend for themselves anyway and i think that kind of mentality has really come to the fore and just made people jump into action to to do whatever they can to help their neighbors, help their family members, help their community members, whether that is digging people out from under the rubble or, you know, just pitching these makeshift tents together and, and you know, sharing tea and, and biscuits and, and um, you know, advice. I think there's a lot of sort of ad hoc relief efforts being carried out by communities who are used to needing to fend for themselves. Um, and I think that has been, you know, kind of the primary dynamic that we've we've observed here. Claire, thank you for taking time to share all of this with us today. Thanks for having me. Claire Parker is the Cairo Bureau Chief for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Emma Talkoff. It was edited by Maggie Penman and mixed by Sean Carter. Thank you to Jesse Messner-Hage. For the latest on this developing story, go to WashingtonPost.com. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. 
In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters? And why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat. Available now.